I'd like to begin today's message with a short video clip. It's about 18 minutes long. And it's from um, a website uh, called TED.com, T-E-D.com. Anybody here have heard of that website or been to it before? A few of you guys. It's a pretty cool website. Um, TED, T-E-D, stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. Um, the mission of this group is, as they put it, is to spread ideas. It's, that's their mission, spreading ideas. They're a nonprofit organization. They're devoted to ideas worth spreading. Um, they started in uh, 1984 uh, as a conference, and the idea was to bring together people from, from basically three different worlds, from the world of technology, from the world of entertainment, and from the world of design. Since then, their scope has, has gotten even broader. But they basically bring together speakers that are innovative, that are creative, they're from the worlds of social, business, and technology. They're, they're out-of-the-box kind of thinkers. And so every once in a while, I find myself wandering toward their uh, website, and I get uh, intrigued. Sometimes I get inspired. Well, the clip I want to show today is um, uh, about 18 minutes long. It's this woman, Katherine Schultz. She's an author. And she's speaking at a conference that Ted is hosting called The Rediscovery of Wonder. I like the name of that conference, The Rediscovery of Wonder. I think that would be a pretty good name for a Christian conference, don't you think? And, um, and she's a, like I said, she's an author. She wrote a book called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. And she's speaking on the topic of being wrong. Anybody ever met somebody who thinks they're right all the time? You know those people? They always think they're right. No matter what the situation is, they think they're right. How annoying are those people? They are so annoying to be around. Because we all know, and if they're honest with themselves, they know they're wrong at least some of the time. Nobody's right all the time. Anybody here married? They <laughs> mean, let me know that I'm not right all the time, no matter how much I might think I am. Anyway, so this is an interesting um, little presentation on the topic of being wrong uh, by Catherine Schultz. I thought it was worth watching to introduce the section, uh, what I want to talk about today. So why don't we, uh, why don't we watch Catherine Schultz? Okay, we need volume. Are we on on the board back there? So it's 1995. I'm in college. And a friend and I go on a road trip from Providence, Rhode Island to Portland, Oregon. You know, we're young and unemployed, so we do the whole thing on back roads, through state parks and national forests, basically the longest route we can possibly take. And somewhere in the middle of South Dakota, I turn to my friend and I ask her a question that's been bothering me for 2,000 miles. What's up with the Chinese character I keep seeing by the side of the road? My friend looks at me totally blankly. There's actually a gentleman in the front row who's doing a perfect imitation of her look. <laughs> buffering, buffering. Hmm. 
beautiful, intellectual, and creative leap you can make. So why do we get stuck in this feeling of being right? One reason actually has to do with the feeling of being wrong. So let me ask you guys something. Or actually, let me ask you guys something, because you're right here. How does it feel emotionally? How does it feel to be wrong? Dreadful. Thumbs down. Embarrassing. embarrassing. OK, wonderful, great. Dreadful, thumbs down, embarrassing. Thank you. These are great answers. But they're answers to a different question. You guys are answering the question, how does it feel to realize you're wrong? <laughs> Realizing you're wrong can feel like all of that, and a lot of other things, right? I mean, it can be devastating. It can be revelatory. It can actually be quite funny, like my stupid Chinese character mistake. But just being wrong doesn't feel like anything. I'll give you an analogy. You remember that Looney Tunes cartoon where there's this kind of pathetic coyote who's always chasing and never catching a roadrunner? In pretty much every episode of this cartoon, there's a moment where the coyote is chasing the roadrunner and the roadrunner runs off a cliff, which is fine. He's a bird. He can fly. But the thing is, the coyote runs off the cliff right after him. And what's funny, at least if you're you know, six years old, is that the coyote is totally fine too. He just keeps running right up into the moment that he looks down and realizes that he's in midair. That's when he falls. When we're wrong about something, not when we realize it, but before that, we're like that coyote after he's gone off the cliff and before he looks down. You know, we're already wrong. We're already in trouble. But we feel like we're on solid ground. So I should actually correct something I said a moment ago. It does feel like something to be wrong. It feels like being right. <laughs> so this is one reason, a structural reason, why we get stuck inside this feeling of rightness. I call this error blindness. You know, most of the time, we don't have any kind of internal cue to let us know that we're wrong about something until it's too late. But there's a second reason that we get stuck inside this feeling as well, and this one is cultural. Think back for a moment to elementary school. You're sitting there in class, and your teacher is handing back quiz papers. And one of them looks like this. This is not mine, by the way. <laughs> so there you are in grade school, and you know exactly what to think about the kid who got this paper. That's the dumb kid, the troublemaker. The one who never does his homework. So by the time you are nine years old, you've already learned, first of all, that people who get stuff wrong are lazy, irresponsible dimwits. And second of all, that the way to succeed in life is to never make any mistakes. We learn these really bad lessons really well. And a lot of us, and I suspect especially a lot of us in this room deal with them by just becoming perfect little A students, perfectionists, overachievers, right? Mr. CFO, astrophysicist, ultramarathoner? <laughs> You're all CFO, astrophysicist, ultramarathoners, it turns out. Okay, so, so fine, right? Except that 
then we freak out at the possibility that we've gotten something wrong. Because according to this, getting something wrong means there's something wrong with us. So we just insist that we're right because it makes us feel smart and responsible and virtuous and safe. So let me tell you a story. A couple of years ago, a woman comes into Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center for a surgery. Beth Israel's in Boston. It's the teaching hospital for Harvard, one of the best hospitals in the country. So this woman comes in and she's taken into the operating room. She's anesthetized. The surgeon does his thing, stitches her back up, sends her out to the recovery room. Everything seems to have gone fine. And she wakes up and she looks down at herself and she says, why is the wrong side of my body in bandages? Well, the wrong side of her body is in bandages because the surgeon has performed a major operation on her left leg instead of her right one. When the vice president for healthcare quality at Beth Israel spoke about this incident, he said something very interesting. He said, for whatever reason, the surgeon simply felt that he was on the correct side of the patient. <laughs> the point of this story is that trusting too much in the feeling of being on the correct side of anything can be very dangerous. This internal sense of rightness that we all experience so often is not a reliable guide to what is actually going on in the external world. And when we act like it is, and we stop entertaining the possibility that we could be wrong, well, you know, that's when we wind up doing things like dumping 200 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, or torpedoing the global economy. So this is a huge practical problem. But it's also a huge social problem. Think for a moment about what it means to feel right. It means that you think that your beliefs just perfectly reflect reality. And when you feel that way, you've got a problem to solve, which is how are you going to explain all of those people who disagree with you? It turns out most of us explain those people the same way, by resorting to a series of unfortunate assumptions. The first thing we usually do when someone disagrees with us is we just assume they're ignorant. You know, they don't, they don't have access to the same information that we do, and when we generously share that information with them, they're going to see the light and come on over to our team. When that doesn't work, when it turns out those people have all the same facts that we do and they still disagree with us, then we move on to a second assumption, which is that they're idiots. <laughs> they have all the right pieces of the puzzle and they are too moronic to put them together correctly. <laughs> and when that doesn't work, when it turns out that people who disagree with us have all the same facts we do and are actually pretty smart, then we move on to a third assumption. They know the truth and they are deliberately distorting it for their own malevolent purposes. So this is a catastrophe. This attachment to our own rightness keeps us from preventing mistakes when we absolutely need to and causes us to treat each other terribly. But you know, to me, what's most baffling and most tragic about this is that it misses the whole point of being human. You know, it's like we want to imagine that our minds are just these perfectly translucent windows and we just kind of gaze out of them and describe the world as it unfolds. And we want everybody else to gaze out of the same window and see the exact same thing. 
not true, and if it were, life would be incredibly boring. The miracle of your mind isn't that you can see the world as it is. It's that you can see the world as it isn't. We can remember the past, and we can think about the future, and we can imagine what it's like to be some other person in some other place. And we all do this a little differently, which is why we can all look up at the same night sky and see this, and also this, and also this. And yeah, you know, it is also why we get things wrong. 1,200 years before Descartes said his famous thing about I think, therefore I am, this guy, St. Augustine, sat down and wrote Fallor ergo sum. I err, therefore I am. Augustine understood that our capacity to screw up is not some kind of you know, embarrassing defect in the human system, something we can eradicate or overcome. It's totally fundamental to who we are. Because unlike God, we don't really know what's going on out there. And unlike all of the other animals, we are obsessed with trying to figure it out. To me, this obsession is the source and root of all of our productivity and creativity. You know, last year, for various reasons, I found myself listening to a lot of episodes of the public radio show, This American Life. I'm sure a lot of you know it. And so I'm listening and I'm listening, and at some point, I start feeling like all the stories are about being wrong. And my first thought was, I've lost it. You know, I've become the crazy wrongness lady. I just imagine it everywhere, <laughs> which has happened. But, <laughs> but a couple of months later, I actually had a chance to interview Ira Glass, who's the host of the show. And I mentioned this to him, and he was like, no, you know, actually, that's true. In fact, he says, as a staff, we joke that every single episode of our show has the same crypto theme. And the crypto theme is, I thought this one thing was going to happen, and something else happened instead. And the thing is, says Ira Glass, we need this. We need these moments of surprise and reversal and wrongness to make these stories work. And for the rest of us, as audience members, as listeners, as readers, we eat this stuff up. You know, we love things like plot twists and red herrings and surprise endings. When it comes to our stories, we love being wrong. But you know, our stories are like this because our lives are like this. We think this one thing is going to happen, and something else happens instead. George Bush thought he was going to invade Iraq, find a bunch of weapons of mass destruction, liberate the people, and bring democracy to the Middle East and something else happened instead. And Hosni Mubarak thought he was going to be the dictator of Egypt for the rest of his life until he got too old or too sick and could pass the reins of power onto his son. And something else happened instead. And maybe you thought you were going to grow up and marry your high school sweetheart and move back to your hometown and raise a bunch of kids together. And something else happened instead. And I have to tell you that I thought I was writing an incredibly nerdy book about a subject everybody hates for an audience that would never materialize. And something else happened instead. <laughs> I mean, this is life. You know, for good and for ill, we generate these incredible stories about the world around us. And then the world turns around and astonishes us. I mean, 
no offense, but this entire conference is an unbelievable monument to our capacity to get stuff wrong. We just spent an entire week talking about innovations and advancements and improvements, but you know why we need all of those innovations and advancements and improvements? Because half the stuff that seemed most mind-boggling and world-altering at, you know, TED 1998, eh. <laughs> Didn't really work out that way, did it? You're like, where's my jetpack, Chris? <laughs> so here we are again. And that's how it goes. We come up with another idea. We tell another story. We hold another conference. The theme of this one, as you guys have now heard seven million times, is the rediscovery of wonder. And to me, if you really want to rediscover wonder, you need to step outside of that tiny, terrified space of rightness and look around at each other and look out at the vastness and complexity and mystery of the universe and be able to say, wow, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Thank you. Hmm. Dorothy, could you get the lights for me, please? That interesting? I really kind of enjoyed that. I watched that a, a few times. <clears throat> and it struck me as a religious professional that maybe more than any other group in human history, we get stuck in our rightness. We get stuck in that we think we're right. Matter of fact, we've gone to war believing that we're right. We've, there are... <laughs> There are people out there, other religious professionals, that fly airplanes into buildings because they're so convinced that they're right. In the 1500s, in the name of God, we would burn people at the stake, we would torture them and cut their heads off because of our rightness. Something's wrong with all of that. I'm not saying I think it's... Um, a goal that we should try to attain to be wrong, <laughs> I think that we've already attained it repeatedly. And humility demands that we are honest with that and that we move forward from there. So at the end here, just to, just to quote her, Catherine says, if you really want to rediscover wonder, you need to step outside that tiny, terrified space of rightness and look around at each other and look out at the vastness and complexity and mystery of the universe and be able to say, wow, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. For our purposes, I would just change one word in her statement. Let me read it this way. If you really want to rediscover wonder, people at the bridge, my friends here today, if you really want to, rediscover wonder, you need to step outside that tiny, terrified space of rightness and look around at each other and look out at the vastness and complexity and the mystery of God and be able to say, wow, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. 
And in this series of messages I've been doing, uh, titled Living in Papa's Affection, um, inspired by Wayne Jacobson's book, He Loves Me, um, uh, I've challenged you to understand God in new and different ways. I've challenged you to have an understanding of who our Father is, our Heavenly Father, who Papa is, differently than maybe what you've been used to in the past. We've done this mostly by looking at familiar Bible texts, like see what great love the Father has lavished on us, so 1 John 3, and we looked at friendship with God out of John 15, and the prodigal son story in Luke 15. We looked at Saul's conversion in Damas- uh, on the road to Damascus out of Acts 9, and the, the story of the rich young businessman and the blind beggar out of Mark 10. The last two messages were, were Jesus' post-resurrection conversation with Peter. Remember when he said, Peter, do you love me? And the last message I did on this series had to do with the fall and what was really going on with Adam and Eve in the garden and how the, the enemy, what he wanted to do was put a wedge of mistrust, of distrust between us and God. And so for this series, we've purposely looked through the lens of God as loving father. And we looked at each one of those stories in a new way. We started with the assumption that God is good. And God does love us. And we looked at these familiar stories that we've, we've read. Most of us here have been Christians for a very long time. We've, we've heard these common stories again and again and again. But looked at them with new eyes. Eyes that say God is good. That God does love me. And I think it's, it's shown a light on us. Uh, to be able to see him in different ways, to see him as the loving father, as opposed to the angry judge that's ready to hammer us at every turn. And so most of us here, we've lived immersed in a religious culture, a church culture for many years. And I just wonder, could it be in all of our rightness, have we been wrong? I still remember that season of life when I, was, I finally got comfortable with being wrong. As a, as a new pastor, as a young pastor, I felt like it was my responsibility, it was my duty to always have an answer for everything. And so what I did is I built up this structure around my life, and I was incredibly organized. Um, I had little boxes for everything. And the reason why I built up this structure was so that I could maintain the facade of rightness. I'm not sure if I would have said it then, but it, it seems clear to me now. It <clears throat> the purpose of the structure wasn't to help other people be right. The, honestly, the purpose of the facade, the structure I created, was so that I would never look wrong. Because I was the guy who was supposed to have all the answers. Heck, after all, that's why I'm getting paid, right? And... <laughs> At some point, there was this epiphany, and God blew me out of this, this jail cell I had built for myself, and I began to be able to be free and say to people, you know what? I don't know. It was extraordinarily liberating to a- admit what most of them probably knew anyway. 
I don't know. When I would find circumstance and situation after situation where the, the uh, prepackaged answers that I had for every question suddenly didn't fit anymore, it shakes up your world. When you pray every prayer, you know how to pray. When you've cast out every demon the way you know how to cast out every demon. When you proclaimed and declared and fasted and the five-year-old daughter of your friend still dies from cancer, you have to look at yourself in the mirror at some point and say, there's something here I don't know. And so some of my prepackaged answers, my facade, was, was crumbling. And it was great. It was a wonderful thing to admit the truth of that and to let it go. I don't think I'm alone. I think lots of other pastors find themselves in that boat. And I think what we've done is we've propagated churches who learn how to wear that same artificial facade. We have to have an answer for everything. We have to be right. And matter of fact, if we can maintain our rightness, we can go to war with other churches in town because we can prove to people that they're wrong and we're right. Except what if maybe we're not? So could it be that in our rightness, we've been wrong? I think one look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is supporting that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. And I've been telling you for weeks now in this series on, on uh, living in Papa's affection, that another way of interpreting those verses is to say it this way, <coughs> that our perceptions don't match God's reality. And so we've taken a look at Scripture in a different way in the hopes that we could see God in a different way. We could see a, a reality of who he is and maybe our perception of him as the angry, harsh judge, the mean father, can be dismantled. Could it be our perceptions are wrong? And I'm thinking, yes, absolutely. It can mean our perceptions are wrong. If his ways and our ways don't match up, I want my perceptions to match up with his reality. So I think this... I think Isaiah 55, 8, and 9 is saying, you know what, guys? You're wrong. <laughs> you know, the Pharisees held on to their rightness, and in their wrong rightness, they crucified their long-awaited Messiah. Holy cow. Man, and they thought they were right. They, I mean, if there was ever you know, an example throughout history of people who lived perfectly right, it was them. And they missed what they wanted most because of it. They were so immersed in their religious culture that they left no room for God doing a new thing. And honestly, it's really just pride. It, it, their pride left no room for them to be wrong. Just like my pride left no room for me to be wrong. It really was my pride. I wanted to look right. What's that facade? That's, that's pride. Right? I, I didn't want to look bad. Pride left no room for change. 
And I know that I'm just as susceptible to, the, to that kind of pride as, as they were. It would be the epitome of foolishness to think that I'm not as vulnerable to that as they were. So, you know, one of the things I've been saying for years, and I've said it since I've been here, is this. That it's more important to love than it is to be right. How many times have you guys heard me say that, right? It's more important to love than it is to be right. That if being right comes at the expense of love, <laughs> and the price is too high. Why? But why is it more important to love than it is to be right? <laughs> because we could be wrong. <laughs> That's why. We can hold on to that rightness now. Like it means everything in the world to us, and somewhere down the road we could find out, uh-oh, <laughs> maybe I wasn't as right as I thought I was. And in the process, I've sacrificed this relationship and this relationship and this relationship and this relationship. What a pity. When I consider how much I've changed, how much I've mellowed and matured and developed over the last 51 years, when I consider how my theologies and my philosophies have evolved, can I at, at least leave some room in my current circumstances, my current life situation, to think that maybe I'm wrong in some of the things here and leave at least some room for the possibility that it could be different than I think it is? I, don't, I think that would be wise. My views on so many things have changed throughout the years. You know, my political views have changed. Oh my God, I voted for Jimmy Carter <laughs> when I first got the vote. My political views have changed since then. My parenting philosophies have changed. I tell you what, when the day comes and Nadine and I get to be grandparents, I will be a much mellower grandfather than I ever was a father. I was so intense as a father, you know? We, what, we were so desperate to make sure we didn't make any mistakes. We wanted to do everything right, you know? My brother, I have a brother who's a year younger than me. And when he first got married, they had three kids, beautiful children, two girls and a boy. It took a 17-year break, and then him and his wife had two more kids. <laughs> and so he's got, he's got like two sets of kids, you know? And so the older kids say that they're the original version, and his younger kids come back and they say, we're the new and improved version, right? <laughs> my brother's telling me, he says, my, my philosophy of parenting has changed so much in that 17-year span. He said, man, the things that I thought were so important then, not so important now. He says, a part of it is I'm just, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't have the energy to go, you know, to war over things that I can't go to war now. But the kids are still great. They're still raising them fine. They've just, he's changed. I've changed. I've changed in so many things. My parenting views. My, my theology and philosophies of religion and ministry have changed in the 35 years I've been a Christian. I think there are some things that I believed then I don't believe now. And things that have gotten better. Things that have been refined. And things have been matured. I've, I've adjusted some things. Now, there are some things that are non-negotiables for me. I don't think that they'll ever change. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to get to the Father. I don't think that'll ever change. That's foundational. But how I relate to him and how we relate to one another, 
that's changed dramatically. How I relate to people who are outside the kingdom, that's changed dramatically. And so if I've changed that much in just the 35 years span of my, my Christian experience, doesn't mean that holding on to rightness at the expense of relationship is a dreadfully foolish mistake. <laughs> because there's at least a possibility that I'm wrong. So why would I sacrifice something as precious as love? I don't think it's worth sacrificing that relationship. Humility demands that I at least consider the possibility that I've gotten some of this God stuff wrong. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what that means? <laughs> that means that humility is in your future. <laughs> One way or another, humility is in your future. Either you choose humility, or he chooses humility for you. My strong encouragement is be proactive. <laughs> you take the first step in humility. You know, I've done this both ways. I know what it's like to choose to take the low road and watch God exalt me. And I know painfully what it's like to walk in pride and my rightness and watch God choose humility for me instead. It's much better the first way than the second way. So last Monday marked, for me, the end of a two-and-a-half-year battle uh, with cancer. Thank you. 879 days, 22 difficult treatments later, my second battle with cancer is over, and I won. Oh. Amen. And Nadine, you know, we fought this battle twice, and both times it was a hard battle. We've learned things along the way. We've learned some important lessons. One of the lessons is this, is that God's ways are not my ways. This second battle began some 880 days ago um, after we moved to Texas. We'd had a very successful ministry in Washington. Very successful, and by every measure. And, um, and had been uh, very much lifted up into the highest levels of our organization, Streams Ministries, um, teaching the uh, Institute of Spiritual Development classes, training people how to do it. I would travel. I served on the board of directors for the Association of Bridge Churches. You know, um, it was uh, in every manner. Uh, of human measure, there was success. We had had a sense that our time there was coming to an end and that some kind of change was coming. And, and Nadine and I both thought that it meant we would go work for John Paul. We knew that for maybe two years before we went. And then I get a call from him. And he says, hey, Tom, would you come work for me? I want you to oversee the Association of Bridge Churches and I want you to run the Institute for Spiritual Development. 
And I'm thinking, yep, this is what we thought was going to happen. We took some time. We prayed about it. We felt like God told us it was a thing to do. Um, but John Paul told us, he said, don't come to Texas until you sell your house. He said, let that be the sign to you that you're really supposed to come. Um, he didn't say that in so many words, but you know, that's what he was encouraging us with. He didn't want us to be stuck with an unsold house in one location and trying to make the payments of living in another. It was just practical you know, advice. And so it's, it had been a pretty bad real estate economy. But we prayed. And I tell you, God aligned the sun, the moon, and the stars to expedite the sale of that house for cash in the down market. And what it did is it got us to Texas um, in no time. I mean, if the, if the buyer of the house had, had not had cash to buy it, uh, but had to go through some loan process, I mean, there could have been one little glitch of red tape. You guys have sold houses, you know what it's like. I mean, all it takes is one little glitch of red tape, and you could be delayed a month, two months, three months, heck, you know. I remember we sold a house in West Virginia, and it was some six months later before the deal finally closed. It was, um, you know, it was amazing just because of paperwork. But I tell you what, we hit no glitches. This thing flew through. So we get to Texas much quicker than we ever thought were possible. I mean, I have, I have one of the premier prophetic voices in the world calling me up on the phone and saying, hey, I want you to come and work for me in the ministry that I'm doing here. And I already felt like God said to do it. And then the circumstances of my life are rearranged to get us there as quickly as humanly possible. It was astounding. And we're there six weeks, and I just go for a normal, regular checkup. <laughs> and I had been cancer-free for almost four years at that point. And we were stunned. We were absolutely astounded. We were devastated to find out <laughs> that cancer was back. And I had to say, I didn't understand. I, I got to that place where I was like, wow. I don't know. God, I don't understand your ways. Why do these things happen? Why is it that there are times when you feel like you're walking in the direction that he wants you to go, and he makes the path for you to go there, and then your world comes crumbling down? It wasn't logical to my logic. It didn't make sense to me. If there had been this much of a glitch, we wouldn't have moved. If there had been this much of a glitch and I had that annual test done in Washington instead of Texas, I never would have gone to Texas, right? I have my doctors already there in Washington. We know all them. It's all set up already. We have our home there. We have all of our friends there. We have a whole community of people that can support us. And we go to Texas, and all that's gone. I don't have any doctors I feel comfortable with. We don't have... Uh, support of a community around us. We don't know anybody. We were there six weeks. And it felt very much <laughs> like it was just Nadine and I. Because to a large degree, it was just Nadine and I. I don't understand his ways. So were we wrong to 
to go? Or were we right to go? Was it the right thing to go, but my expectations were wrong? Or was it that we weren't supposed to go? You could probably make a good argument either way. And the short answer is, I don't know. But it's a journey he put us on. And it's led us to be here. I think that's a good thing. But like I said, as we've gone through that battle, those difficult things, I've learned some stuff. I've learned that God is good. I've learned that God loves me. And I've learned, I've chosen not to judge God's love for me, not to judge my, perceive, my perception of his goodness based upon my circumstances. Instead, maybe the greatest lesson I've learned in life as I've gone through two difficult battles with cancer is I've learned not to judge God's goodness and God's love for me by my circumstances. Instead, I've learned to look at my circumstances in light of his love for me and his goodness. Not easy. It's not easy. When you're sick and your body's racked with pain and <clears throat> you have insomnia and you haven't slept for days and you feel alone, it's not an easy place to learn those lessons. It's a hard place to learn those lessons. But I've learned in that place that he loves me. The song you did today, you know, he loves me. I can remember one of the darkest moments of my life. We were there in Texas. I was sick. I couldn't eat. It seemed like my digestive system was a mess. I couldn't process food. I was incredibly bloated. And one of the drugs that they were giving me was to expedite the, the growth of white blood cells. And so any place where I had, you know, bulkier bones felt like they were just expanding from the inside out. My body was racked with pain. And one of the other side effects of the chemotherapy is I couldn't sleep. It had been days. I felt like I was at the absolute end of my rope. We knew no one there. I felt like I was ringing Nadine out of all the love and comfort and support that she could offer to me. And I remember being up in the middle of the night in agony. Maybe to the end of my rope more than I've ever been to the end of my rope before. Praying that God would just take me home. I've had so many visions in my life of heavenly places and places in the spirit. It's a good place to go. And the physical realm was so racked with pain. I was like, God, just please take me. I, I just want to go. I'll miss Nadine, and there's so much going left for my children's lives ahead, but I can't take this anymore. And somebody, I don't remember who, <laughs> had posted a video of that song, He Loves Me, on Facebook. And so in the middle of the night, I clicked on it. And I listened to that song, and it, and it broke everything. The reality of his love for me in that moment, in the darkest place maybe I've ever been, made me realize that in spite of my circumstances, God's good. And God's 
loves me. And it, for that moment, it rescued me from that pit. None of my church growth philosophies helped me in that moment. None of the thousands of Bible studies or sermons I've ever prepared helped me in that moment. But a sweet girl singing a song about God's love for us touched my heart, and I thought it couldn't be touched. And it rescued me that night. I can tell you this as honestly as possible. Knowing as a set fact that God's good and God loves me and choosing to view my circumstances through that lens has been the difference of life and death. Why do bad things happen? I don't know. But it, bad things don't happen because God's bad. And bad things don't happen because God has failed to love me. And you know, maybe that is the place of faith. When the circumstances are bad, will I still trust that he's good? When the circumstances are bad, will I still trust that he loves me, even if I can't feel it? I haven't perfected this whole thing yet. I'm, I still walk it out. But I am a work in progress. So, with that as a foundation, I just have a couple more things I want to say. I just wanted you to look at one verse of Scripture today and challenge you to think in a new way about one thing. So in the beginning, I asked you to open up to 2 Corinthians 5. Let me just read verses 16 to 21, and then I just want to challenge you on something in verse 19. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, So from now on, we, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't it amazing how, especially you've been Christians for a long time, you could read familiar verses and just kind of remember or focus on the stuff you're familiar with and overlook other parts. I know, I, I've done that. And then somewhere along the line, God opens my eyes and I see a part that I never quite saw before. I'm like, wow, it was there all the time. Like in the text I just read, most of us are familiar with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right? Everybody's got a bumper sticker that says that, or you did at one point, or a kitchen magnet or something. We're all familiar with that one. Somebody's got a wall plaque. I bet you somebody in this room has a plaque at home that's got that verse on it. Well, you did. But what about verse 19? We remember verse 17, but what about verse 19? God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
Well, it can't really mean that. It can't mean that God's not counting people's sins against them. That would really screw up our theology. That would mess up this whole church thing. God not counting people's sins against them. I don't see a loophole in there. So I looked it up in other translations. I'm thinking, ah, the NIV, sometimes it's suspect, whatever, maybe it says something different in another translation. Well, the, the New American Standard, that's always trustworthy. That's a solid one. I'll trust NASB. Not counting their trespasses against them. Hmm. How about the Amplified Bible? It always kind of gives me a little bit more to understand and chew on. Not counting up and holding against men their trespasses, but canceling them. Wow. New Living Translation. No longer counting people's sins against them. That's an astonishing verse. It has astonishing implications. One implication is I can't use that as a weapon to control and manipulate my people anymore. Oh, crap. How am I going to do this ministry thing? How can I ever get them to give money? <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> Does it really mean that? That God doesn't count people's sins against them? Does it really mean that? Well, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, speaking of love, says it keeps no record of wrongs. Sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God not counting people's sins against them. So it begs the question, if God's not keeping score, why are you? If he's not keeping score, why are you keeping score? Paul said he doesn't even judge himself. Maybe there's a whole piece to this thing we've missed. Maybe it's better than we thought it was. Could it be that keeping score, keeping score comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And not from the tree of life? It changes the dynamics of our relationship. It changes it from religion to relationship. It changes it from formula to friendship. Is God really that good? Is the blood of Jesus really, totally and completely enough? Is the grace of God truly sufficient for us? I think he's all that. And I think he's much, much more. I think he's a whole lot more good than we think he is. I think his love for us is vastly more extravagant than we've ever imagined. And I think that some of our thinking is wrong. Some of our religious thinking from all of our lives has been in error because it's made God smaller. Any theology that makes God smaller and makes man bigger, that makes God less powerful and makes more man more powerful, any theology that makes God have less influence and ability and gives man more influence and ability, hold that theology suspect. But anything that makes God grand, that makes him big, that views him as truly all-powerful, perfectly good and all-loving, I'm willing to go there. I'm thinking I'm going to find good stuff in that place. Anything that makes man's capabilities and abilities less powerful sounds a whole lot more like me <laughs> and who I really am. 
So I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. If you haven't yet, pick up a copy of Wayne Jacobson's book, He Loves Me. One of the best books I've ever read. I encourage you to read that book. Because he he communicates this stuff much better than I have in these nine messages I've done on it. Read that book and begin to look at your at your spiritual journey. Begin to look at your walk of faith in a new way. Read that book and most importantly begin to look at Papa in a new way. And then I encourage you to go back and reread the New Testament and see if you don't see things test if you don't see things differently than you've ever seen them before. I bet that you'll read the New Testament with new eyes and that you'll read it with a new heart. A heart that's settled in the reality that God truly is good and that God absolutely does love you lavishly and extravagantly. So let's pray. Oh God, oh God, oh God, I've been wrong in so many things. I've been wrong so many times, so many ways. I thank you that you're big enough to deal with my wrongness. That your grace is sufficient. (laughs) That your power is made perfect in all the weak areas of my life. I thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for victory over cancer again. I thank you. Father, for myself and for my friends here, we want to know you. We want to truly know you. We want to know you for who you really are. And we humbly admit that we've seen things incorrectly. We humbly admit that we've been wrong. So God, change us. Take the log from our eyes so that we can see. Take the calluses from our hearts. Take the religion from our minds. And help us to fall passionately, madly in love with you. Yet again, do it, Lord. Lord, I invite you to come and step into our lives and and the circumstances of our lives. And you yourself deal with what's ever wrong. With what's ever a mistake. Come and do really what only you can do. You're the only one who can deal with the sin in our lives. You're the only one that's capable of that. Would you come and eradicate sin and repair its damage in our lives? And bring us to a place where we love you and we love one another. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I do love you guys. If anybody needs prayer, come on down. I'd be happy to pray for you today. Oh, one last thing. We have some friends visiting next week. Dwayne and Dawn Coffin. They pastor the Bridge Church in Kennewick, Washington, the church that Nadine and I come from. They were our associate pastors and. They'll be in town next week, and so you guys will get to, to meet them. Wonderful, wonderful people. I think it's their 25th wedding anniversary, and so they wanted to come and do the New York touristy thing and celebrate their anniversary and get to see us. So I'm excited that they'll be here over a Sunday, and you guys will get to 
get to visit with them as well. So it should be a treat. I love you guys. Have an awesome uh, Sunday. I'll see you throughout the week.